Hello, listeners. This is Dr. Richard McCallum, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, uh, the Journal of the AFMR, American Federation for Medical Research. Each month, we do a podcast uh, of a very interesting topic with experts who can educate and update us in this area. Uh, This month, I've chosen colon cancer, since March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And I think it's a very timely opportunity to talk about uh, a devastating entity in this country and worldwide for that matter. Um, We're making some changes and inroads, but you'll hear about the challenges that lie ahead. So I want to introduce to you two colleagues of mine, two guests. Uh, One I'm going to start with is, um, we'll go with the name of Dr. Raju. Uh, When I think back in my career, actually, I've made a few good decisions. One of the best ones uh, well, my best recruitment was to recruit Dr. Raju as uh, head of endoscopy at the University of Kansas. I helped him start his career, and he made the University of Kansas somewhat creditable in the endoscopy world. He then traveled on to Galveston, the first medical school in Texas, uh, if we want to keep saying that. And then he's now moved on to MD Anderson, uh, where he has been appointed um, uh, over time from associate professor to full professor, and now an endowed professor, the John Strollen Endowed Professorship at uh, MD Anderson. When you think about Raju in Texas and nationally, you think about all the things he's done for gastrointestinal endoscopy, the journal that sort of is synonymous with his name, the great teaching um, innovations he's brought to the field of endoscopy, particularly colonoscopy. And uh, therefore, it's, there was no choice, no better choice for me uh, than to call on him. And he, he fortunately agreed to join us today. Our other colleague is uh, Robert Bresseler. Uh, Robert is um, also at MD Anderson, where he's um, Professor of Medicine in the in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, Nutrition, and he's also um, uh, has a distinguished professorship in gastrointestinal oncology, the Bertie J and Lydia J. Resoft professorship, and um, medical school in, in Chicago. Um, uh, went to um, Barnes Hospital. Walsh University for his residency, where we talked about some familiar names, fellowship in San Francisco, and um, heading back uh, to Houston here, where he's risen to uh, his current position. His research is very much involved with cancer screening, colon cancer screening, and I'm looking forward to hearing um, input from both of our colleagues. So I'm, I'm going to start. Um, with uh, Dr. Bresselev and, and talk a bit about um, some of the changes that have evolved this year in the screening recommendations and when to start doing endoscopies and perhaps some other issues that you've gleaned between the lines. So perhaps you could give us an update on the, uh, on the screening recommendations from at least the American Cancer Society and the American College of Gastroenterology. Yeah, certainly. Um, pleasure to be with you, Richard. <clears throat> so 
Um, what we've seen, you know, really over the last decade in terms of screening guidelines have been a progression in terms of risk stratification. And um, first thing I'd like to say before we get into the guidelines themselves is that screening saves lives uh, from colon cancer. And so it's very important. Um, traditionally, we've evolved a, a large number of screening tests, although colonoscopy still is the predominant one in the United States. Traditionally, um, we started screening in average risk uh, individuals, average risk being no personal or family history of, of colon cancer or, or adominous polyps at 50. And that's been like that for quite a while. Um, about four years ago, the American uh, Cancer Society made a qualified recommendation that perhaps we should start screening in uh, all in average risk individuals at 45 instead of 50. And that was somewhat based on uh, mathematical modeling. Basically, they commissioned modeling that looked at quality and life years saved uh, from screening at different ages. And there was a significant uh, incremental benefit from starting at 45 versus 50. That was not immediately um, joined by uh, the major GI societies, American Gastroenterological Association of American uh, College of Gastroenterology or the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which really um, uh, is, is looked upon as an authority when it comes to funding uh, health care in the United States. Uh, but this past year, very significantly, again, based on, on modeling, and I think a little bit better modeling than uh, was done previously, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommended beginning average risk screening at age 45. So then just last month, the American College of Gastroenterology, uh, I think, followed suit. And uh, as many of the guidelines presented an evidence-based approach to look at the quality of the evidence for uh, screening in various scenarios, and they made that recommendation again to start screening at age 45 in, in average risk individuals. Um, we haven't heard from the American Gastroenterological Association yet, uh, although they do recommend starting at 45 in African-Americans, but I would imagine uh, they will probably follow suit shortly because the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force really uh, seems to guide uh, what people do because they really inform uh, Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, in terms of funding and they, they usually follow suit. So I think we'll see that in general. I mean, I think it's worth, I don't wanna to speak too long on this, but I, I think it's worth looking at both sides of the coin though. There is a certainly a, a significant, but small incremental benefit from starting at age 45 versus 50 in average risk individuals. But the other side of the coin that's been argued is if you were to take the resources uh, involved in screening an additional 21 a million people, which is what basically we'd be doing starting at 45 versus 50, and put that into screening the 40% of the U.S. population who don't get screening, who are over 50, that the bang for the buck might be greater in, in, in using resources that way. Now, that's an argument that we, you know, we can have, and there's merit to both of them, uh, but the reality is um, guidelines are now moving to starting at 45 versus 50. What is our uh, current percentage estimate that you have for how effective have we been for over age 50? What, what are we quoted as far as uh, what penetration have we made into the, the total screening picture? Okay, so in the last decade, um, 
we've had a, a approximately a, a little under a 2% per year reduction in incidence and about a 3% per year reduction in mortality from colorectal cancer in the over 50 uh, average risk screening population. So, and that, that's quite significant in aggregate. Um, so screening works. Um, most of that reduction, not all of it is due to screening, but much of it is. So we certainly have an impact in the over 50 group. Now I'm sure we'll get to speaking about yeah. so-called early onset colorectal cancer where the incidence has been rising some. But I will also say that that reduction is, uh, you look at the denominator, it's, it's per capita per 100,000 population. But as we are an aging population, the absolute numbers for incidence mortality in the United States have not budged very much. So we're still at about a little under 150,000 new cases a year and about 50,000 deaths per year from colorectal cancer in the United States. What's our screening success? I was gonna say 65, 70%. What's, what's the average figure you quote? How, how successful are we in Houston? How many over the age of 50 people have been screened in Houston? Well, I think it, it, it depends on the segment of the population. And that's, that's one of the issues that uh, we're, we're facing in terms of screening there. You know, when it comes to the insured population, um, you know, we, we, we do better. We probably do more on the, um, you know, on the 80% level. But there is a, you know, large segment of the population, so-called underserved population, uh, where it's much worse. And in fact, uh, with a large... African-American and Hispanic population uh, in Texas as, as a whole, um, certainly in Houston, uh, there are, you know, there are uh, holes in what we should be doing in terms of, of screening in general. Dr. Raju, let me um, turn to you in your, in your, your sort of <clears throat> reputation as sort of uh, the ultimate colonoscopist. Um, I try to tag along with the GI fellows and keep up with everything, but I'm impressed that we're seeing a, a trend towards right-sided colon cancer evolving. Maybe we're just looking harder or longer in that part of the colon. And B, I keep reading about um, early screening, particularly uh, the trend towards females, perhaps having left-sided issues and even anal cancer. Uh, do you want to comment a bit about what trends you're seeing in your colonoscopic spectrum of diagnosing cancer? I think, uh, uh, I think we should uh, uh, take a step back and uh, look at uh, what happened in terms of the quality of colonoscopy screening. Uh, there are a few things that we have incorporated into our practice that may have changed the way uh, we are seeing things now. I think uh, uh, when I was a fellow, uh, even up to about uh, 10 years back, uh, we were using a single dose uh, colon prep uh, taken over, uh, the night before, uh, which uh, does not uh, clear the right side of the colon. Uh, but we recognized that uh, that problem could be solved by taking a split dose prep, uh, the second dose taken uh, four to six hours before the procedure. Uh, has made a huge impact on the quality of the, uh, of the cleaning of the right side. Uh, that's one thing uh, that has uh, changed in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, the second one is uh, uh, the fact that uh, we are uh, tuned to 
recognizing these uh, flat lesions, uh, uh, the flat sessile serrated adenomas uh, more often uh, because there was a lot of literature published in the last uh, few years mm -hmm. and uh, people are looking for those. Uh, the third thing is uh, uh, the time to uh, withdraw the scope uh, has been mandated by different uh, uh, societies and also implemented in, uh, uh, in our own practice, you know, six minutes or 10 minutes, you know, so that uh, people take time to examine during the withdrawal. And all these features have actually improved the quality of phonoscopy screening. Uh, for the sake of uh, audience who are looking at it or listening to this, uh, the endpoint is basically whether you're finding an adenoma in the colon and how many adenomas are you finding in a particular colon makes a difference. And that is uh, adenoma detection rate. Uh, there are some good studies that uh, have come out uh, showing that uh, if you go through a colonoscopist who has a high adenoma detection rate, uh, your chance of uh, developing colon cancer, uh, seeing in that practice is much less uh, compared to somebody who has a low adenoma detection rate. So there are a lot of different things happened which changed uh, the quality of exam overall uh, uh, in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, the question is, uh, uh, people do describe that, that there are a lot more uh, right-sided lesions uh, that people see, I'm wondering, uh, even missed lesions on the right side. I'm uh, wondering because the right side is the most difficult to examine. And yeah. uh, if people don't uh, uh, take the prep because patients are upset getting up in the morning and taking the prep. So if they don't, and if we can't clean the colon, uh, we tend to uh, miss those lesions. And the second one is the right side is more capacious uh, than the rest of the colon. And unless uh, people take a lot of time to examine, uh, one is likely to miss those lesions. And although there are some uh, new uh, tools that people could use uh, to increase their detection rate, but at the end of the day, I think the mindset of an endoscopist uh, should be uh, that when somebody is screening a colon, uh, their goal is to screen the colon, not necessarily uh, doing a colonoscopy. You know, if a trainee is listening to this, uh, he should keep in mind that he is doing a screening exam. And, uh, and how confident are you with your exam to tell the patient that there's nothing there is uh, something to be kept in mind. Uh, regarding the anal cancers, I think there's a lot recently uh, being talked about, especially uh, given the HPV relationship and the fact that uh, we have a vaccine uh, it's a good idea for gastroenterologists to educate uh, patients uh, when they see younger patients uh, to get a vaccine uh, to at least uh, uh, have that opportunity to prevent uh, anal cancer from HPV. And, uh, and uh, as part of the uh, digital exam that we do to insert a scope, it is a great opportunity for us to screen the anus for anal cancer uh, by not necessarily uh, inserting the finger to lubricate the anus to allow you to pass the scope. Instead, to do a, uh, a dedicated exam of the anal canal with the 360 degree rotation of the finger 
finding for that induration of the anal canal. And also, uh, if you get into the habit of uh, placing a cap at the end of the scope, uh, that's what we do. At least uh, uh, quite a few of my uh, colleagues in, in our group use uh, a cap-fitted endoscope routinely. And uh, that cap would allow you to examine the anal canal for anal papillomas, which is a precancerous condition. Uh, in terms of uh, rising incidence and uh, those things, I would uh, like to uh, request in a Bob, uh, who may be uh, um, uh, probably more knowledgeable in terms of the, yeah. the epidemiology of these problems. I think uh, uh, let me request him to comment on that. Your reference to vi to vaccine, you mean papillomavirus? Is that what you're concerned about with anal cancer? Yes, yes. yes. And has that been borne out, Dr. Bresselier? Is uh, papillomavirus uh, a, a concern for the rising, well, not rapid, but a small increase in anal cancer in women? Well, in anal cancer, for, you know, yes. Um, certainly human papillomavirus yeah. is associated with a, a number of, um, you know, types of cancer, anal cancer being one of them. And in fact, it's a, you know, it's a principal cause, um, you know, probably preventable with the vaccine that Roger mentioned. Uh, and so uh, HPV is, a, again, a preventable disease. In this case, with screening does help, but we, we have a vaccine and, and certainly there are good guidelines for uh, vaccinating uh, younger individuals. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a, there's a real campaign to, to do this. Um, you know, it is a generally a transitional cell or squamous cell carcinoma as opposed to the adenocarcinomas we see in the colon. Now, as I said, I've been struck lately with the fact that, although um, Dr. Raju would point out that you know, better preparations and better endoscopes, we're probably picking up smaller flatter lesions on the right side and other places. But quite frankly, I, 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 my feeling is just talking to people from, not that we go to cocktail parties anymore, but just tuning in around town whenever I can. Uh, I'm also the president of the El Paso County Medical Society, so I get a lot of input there. I can't help but believe there is a, a feeling of a rising tide in colon cancer. So Dr. Bresley, do you think it's sort of a, a subterranean group of Lynch syndromes? Uh, do you think there's some other factors X and Y? I can't get excited about meat and alcohol. That's been beaten to death with with you know, ropes and chains for a hundred years, I, I can't go there. Um, what do you think might? What do you think about when you wonder why is it s seems to be going up uh, despite all this uh, rah rah and all these endoscopies? Right. So I mean, overall, uh, <clears throat> we talked about before the rate of colon cancer actually. <clears throat> has decreased over the last decade. Where it's going up is in the uh, prevalence of so-called early onset colorectal cancer. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, that's been broadly defined as anywhere from, you know, 18 to 20 to 49. So it's a broad group. Uh, the vast majority of those do occur uh, in the 40 to 50 age group. Um, but we're seeing a rise in, in all age cohorts. Um, the, the younger you get, one might surmise that, that, that more of those are proportionally genetically prime cancers, such as 
happens in the setting of Lynch syndrome. Uh, but, but certainly that only accounts for a small percentage of the rise. There are numerous theories as to why this, and a great interest in why this may be occurring. And interestingly enough, we talked about right-sided cancers, and, and clearly overall in the last 50 years, the shift had been from left to right. In early onset colorectal cancer, many of those are rectal cancers, so it's a distal disease. Um, and so then the real question is, <clears throat> is it lifestyle, is it genetics? I, I'll go through some of the theories. The good news is the um, National Cancer Institute has recently put a fair amount of money into this as a special area of, of, of interest. So um, I've been on a number of study sections to fund research to, to look at this. And so why is it happening? Um, no one really knows for sure. Theories go that perhaps a component is the epidemic of obesity of increased metabolic syndrome, uh, perhaps the great and early onset use of antibiotics in a younger age group, uh, perhaps uh, increased smoking in, in younger individuals. Those have all been thrown out there as epidemiological explanations, uh, some of which may have some, some credence, but certainly not proven. Um, you know, genetics is interesting. I mean, certainly we don't know if uh, the, the genetics and behavior are the same in, in these earlier cohorts than in the older age population. Uh, but I can tell you there's a, a very large uh, a push to, to find those answers out. And in fact, uh, MD Anderson, in conjunction with uh, University of Texas Austin, uh, has just set forth an initiative specifically to look at this, and I'm on that board. Uh, but as I say, uh, the NIH has funded uh, a good deal of research in this area. Uh, another, you know, correlative area besides early onset is really uh, the increase in cancer in underserved populations. And that, that may be for other reasons, but it's something we have to pay attention to. Well, maybe for both of you, um, you know, I run a free clinic on Saturday mornings, take the medical students down, we volunteer and look after the poor and underserved and uh, population of El Paso with no money. This is all free. And we face a discussion about how do we screen for colon cancer down there? These folks may get to a colonoscopy. So, you know, I give them their, their um, hemocol blood kit to go home and get a little piece of stool and bring it back a week or so later and we check it for them. Um, sometimes we um, convince them to try to um, get in line here at Texas Tech for the uh, compensated or uh, some sort of discount program we can offer them with our GI fellows. But talk to me a bit about the future you see of uh, stool and blood DNA related testing or more extensive testing facilities or opportunities in 20s, 30s and 40s and particularly in populations who probably can't afford a colonoscopy yet or for some reason are averse to having a colonoscopy. Um, maybe yeah, well, Dr. Raja, you could kick oh. in as well. This is a maybe dominating conversation. Dr. Bressler, I apologize. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Yeah. I think, uh, 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 Dr. McCallum, I think uh, knowing what uh, Bob does in this area, 
uh, he will be the best person to answer. He's yeah. doing a lot of uh, work, uh, cutting edge work into screening, uh, looking at some markers. Uh, uh, let me hear from Bob what he what he has to say. Okay. I think, yeah, uh, I also think it's worth you know hearing from you obviously about you know the colonoscopy programs, but you know it, it's a matter of how good is good enough in what population and, and what you can one could afford. So. You know, I think it's worth noting that while the vast majority of screening in the United States is with colonoscopy, that's not the paradigm around the world where it's mostly a two-stage process where we do something first. Most of the time, that's fecal immunochemical testing. And then if it's positive, the colonoscopy. Um, and um, so the real push has been uh, to develop non-invasive uh, tests that could be used both as primary and in or the two-stage process. And, <clears throat> you know, we have stool tests. I mean, FIT is a stool test. Um, there's a multi-component uh, multi uh, test, which includes stool DNA alterations along with FIT. Uh, but, uh, you know, the holy grail has been to develop a blood test. Um, the, there are, interestingly enough, there are five different large-scale clinical trials going on now with various types of, of blood tests, but it's a long, as we're going to be talking about in a upcoming World Endoscopy Organization webinar, it's, it's a long process from getting from the laboratory to the clinic, and uh, there's a lot involved, including uh, regulatory issues, funding, but we want to get there, and, you know, if we have a hope of, you know, getting to aspired goals for, for screening everyone, and certainly underserved populations, we're gonna to have to be able to have tests that are affordable and readily available to everyone. Um, as if, especially as we start to screen um, younger age uh, people, we're gonna to need to look at how we utilize resources. The other thing too is, it's one thing to say, okay, we're gonna screen to 45 to 50 with colonoscopy. But as you get into these younger cohorts, where colon cancer is rising, but it's still a very small component of a very large population. Yeah. We can't do colonoscopy on everyone. So we're going to have to have something that takes that first step in identifying a high-risk person, whether it's a combination of epidemiology and a non-invasive test. Uh, and the genetics may be different. We, we don't know. We have to find out what's special about that group. Dr. Roger, let me ask you, a very provocative question, controversial question. I'm involved with the legislative process a bit as president of El Paso County Mayor Society. Scope of practice is a very, very hot ticket in Austin right now. On the other hand, I often thought that quite frankly, colonoscopy is all very well, but you know, I'm not sure a good nurse practitioner uh, couldn't be taught to do a good colonoscopy and report back to you or have a video screen in her room and call you in if needed. Uh, realistically, uh, what's the future of having someone like a nurse practitioner or an endoscopically trained colleague to do the ABCs of colonoscopy and then report back if and when something is found at a much cheaper price? I think, uh, 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 Dr. McCallum, you bring out a very uh, important point, 
uh, that uh, by decreasing the age group to 45, you're adding another 20 plus million people for, for the first time screening. And uh, it's not just the screening, right? Once you screen, you'll find uh, polyps in an X percentage. And depending upon uh, the practice, anywhere between 30, 40, 50%. And each one of them will end up coming back uh, into that queue yeah. uh, for a surveillance program. Uh, so it is a huge, uh, huge uh, uh, a number of people that need a colonoscopy. So then the question comes is, uh, do we have the workforce to uh, provide that service? Uh, and, uh, and that is something that uh, I keep uh, wondering. Uh, and one of the issues that we have to keep in mind is as an endoscopist uh, performing colonoscopy day in and day out, uh, it is a lot of uh, stress on the body. And uh, it's not uncommon to find uh, even younger uh, endoscopists uh, developing musculoskeletal injuries from these procedures. And once you lost somebody because of a physical injury, uh, that uh, guy or girl is, uh, cannot provide any service, right? You know, if you look at it. And uh, uh, every practice will have people who have had uh, suffered with injuries. So, and the second one is to train a, a gastroenterologist in this country to perform endoscopy. Uh, it, it takes about, uh, you know, somebody who's uh, probably around 32 or 33 years of age uh, before they come out uh, to practice uh, endoscopy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, could we uh, look at an option where somebody does the technical aspects of endoscopy uh, and don't have to go through the whole uh, GI training, then uh, you have some options. And, uh, and uh, uh, one option is, could we train uh, nurses, uh, uh, like, a, like a certified registered nurse anesthetist? You could have a concept like a certified registered nurse endoscopist. Uh, to uh, at least uh, do the screening exam. Uh, the reason I think that the timing is uh, probably there right now, I think uh, there are, you know, in the past people have used that, you know, at different VAs, nurses have done endoscopy, Hopkins, there are uh, nurses have done endoscopy. In Britain, it's uh, run by nurse endoscopists uh, for screening. So if you think about it, could we start a program? I think the timing is uh, almost there yeah. uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, there are better simulation-based uh, training models that are available now that you could train uh, nurses in how to do the mechanical part of endoscopy. And the second one is if you wonder, hey, would the nurse be able to pick up the lesions? Uh, uh, we all know that a good nurse, uh, endoscopy nurse helping you in the procedures can easily pick up how to pick up those lesions. Uh, plus, with the advent of uh, artificial intelligence uh, that is being incorporated into the scopes, uh, there is a second pair of eyes to help that uh, nurse endoscopist to do that. Uh, and uh, we actually 
uh, as part of the initiative that we are looking at uh, uh, in a, at MD Anderson, uh, working with the Houston Community College, uh, we are trying to develop the endoscopy tech training program uh, because there's no formal training program for techs, uh, at least in Texas. Uh, maybe there's one somewhere on the East Coast. Uh, nationally, there's one in Baltimore. Training. I think there's one in Baltimore. Right. So uh, one option is, okay, could we use a material that we develop for the program to train endoscopy nurses? Uh, I actually reached out to the Texas Medical Board and the Texas Medical Board, at least in Texas, uh, allows a nurse to do uh, procedures if the institution uh, signs off, right? Say for example, uh, at my institution, we go through a protocol for training and, and make sure that they're competent. Uh, we could allow an endoscopy, a nurse to do endoscopy. Uh, that is uh, Texas law allows that. The uh, only thing is, uh, how do we make sure that we could get there? I think uh, it requires a lot of resources and the time uh, from a seasoned uh, endoscopist who can actually uh, train uh, a nurse. Uh, it's, you know, the thing is if, if we start now in five to seven years time, you could actually develop a program uh, like a nurse endoscopist program. That will be of a huge benefit. You know, to me, the way I look at it is a senior endoscopist, once he's in their 60s uh, or plus, uh, they do face a lot of mechanical injuries, but their mind is sharp in terms of picking the lesions. And uh, they could actually work with a nurse endoscopist uh, who could do the mechanical part and help take care of a lot more patients. You know, otherwise somebody has to just uh, retire and that knowledge is gone. Yeah, I like, I like the focus. You know, we as gastroenterologists are doing multitasking we're thinking of a hundred things during the colonoscopy we may be worrying about phone calls and patients and other things i think a nurse endoscopist their job today is to scream they're not worried about lifting up polyps and injecting and taking out complicated polyps or perforating because of that or stopping bleeding i think just my job is to screen 15 patients today and I'll be happy doing that. I don't have to be a GI hero and run around town and run around the hospital. I'm only focusing on screening. And I'm very good. And I'm very happy. I'm very good. And I don't need to do any more than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be because the GI guy today is doing it, but it's not his cup of tea. He wants to do more gallant and more um, dramatic things than screening. So I, I think the future, I think it's a good time right now with the lowering of the screening and uh, the fact you're doing more dramatic endoscopic tricks and procedures, this sort of mundane screening, why not let it be done by a nurse, registered nurse, and you, you take out the tricky polyps, you lose nothing except 40 minutes uh, right. screening, waiting around uh, in the endoscopy suite. You could be doing something more at your level. Right. Let, let yeah, I'm sorry, I just want to one thing. So, uh, some years ago, when flexible sigmoidoscopy was, you know, a larger part of what we do, uh, as part of the prostate, lung, colon, and ovarian cancer screening trial, which is the largest screening trial that's ever occurred in the United States, um, we taught nurses uh, to do sigmoidoscopy. Yeah. And they did quite well. I mean, in fact, they did as well or in 
term sometimes better. And, you know, one, perhaps one application would be since in that younger age group where we have rising colon cancer, yet the absolute numbers are small, but mostly they're distal lesions, we could perhaps uh, have increased screening in those cohorts by having, you know, non-physician screeners do flexible scomonoscopy. And, you know, yes, you don't look at the whole colon, but where you have a higher risk of distal lesions, that might work. Um, and, and actually, if you look at the sigmoidoscopy data in terms of impact of mortality, it's not that much different than full colonoscopy. I'm not saying we should do sigmoidoscopy as the preferred test, but in a particular cohort where distal disease is more predominant, that might work. Well, colleagues, we've uh, certainly covered a few good bases and we've taken up our time. I can't thank you enough for, um, for the information you're imparting to the American Federation for Medical Research and other colleagues who are listening in. This podcast will be posted and uh, you'll have many uh, listeners. So, uh, Dr. Bressley, I very much enjoyed meeting you. And, uh, of course, Raju, I'm in, the, I'm in the presence of a legend here in Texas, so I'm always glad to have you uh, on board. You know that. And uh, our friendship uh, is sustained. So with that background, uh, colleagues, I'm going to sign off on our podcast for this month and uh, uh, wish you all the very best for the upcoming um, Easter and perhaps in the past Passover holidays and look forward to seeing you again on our next podcast. Thank you again and goodbye.